created live on Fireside. Good afternoon, everybody. It is just about noontime here on Fireside, and I am Dr. Laura DeVoe, and welcome to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. This is our weekly opportunity to come to uh, you live as far as uh, giving you the most up-to-the-minute opportunities to talk about higher education, the news, and uh, all the things that are happening out there in the higher ed world. Um, today, uh, we are actually talking about the news of higher education. Our guest is Chris Quintana from the USA Today. Um, as we know, and as I've observed, higher education coverage in mainstream news media typically focuses on human interest stories, headline-worthy trends, and uh, not really the news that makes the difference to some of us who actually work in higher education. Um, and with higher education at a crisis of falling confidence and trust, higher education pros need to understand what drives the education news cycle. Uh, Chris Quintana is the current national education, uh, um, excuse me, national education enterprise reporter at the University of uh, sorry, the USA Today. Wow, and uh, formerly of the Chronicle of Higher Education. Um, for those of you who are unfamiliar with how to use uh, our our app here on Fireside, I want to call your attention to a few things. Uh, you can actually share this with your friends uh, on your social media by going to the. Um, to the hamburger in the lower left-hand corner of your screen. Um, it's the black dot. Um, and if you click on broadcast to the world, that actually brings you to a uh, opportunity to share it on your uh, various social media platforms. So thank you very much. And I encourage all of you to share and engage. And as we go on today, at some point, I will let you know it's time for questions and it's an opportunity for you to actually step up to the microphone and chat with us. So welcome to Fireside and welcome Chris Quintana from the USA Today to Fireside. It is, a, I'm thrilled to have you here. Thank you for being here. Oh, let's make sure you are off, off mute. You know, okay. two years into the pandemic, you think I would be uh, on top <laughs> of this by now, but um, my apologies. Uh, but yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is uh, something that I think about a lot and, and something I'm always happy to chat with people about. I think, you know, journalists are supposed to be available and, and public facing. And, and so, yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, I, I appreciate you being here. And Chris, I do have this to say is that I actually have a friend who uh, bought all of their their friends a mug for Christmas last year. And at the bottom of the mug was printed, you're on mute. <laughs> so when you're doing this, everyone can see it. Uh, so I think universal that's problem. Yeah, it, yeah. it is, it's a universal <laughs> problem. So I, we, we're all in this together. Um, so Chris, talk to us about how you got into higher education reporting. Um, and uh, you used to be at the Chronicle, you're now at the USA Today. Love to know about your thoughts on who is your audience and did your approach change between the time that you left the Chronicle and now coming to the USA Today? Uh, yeah, well, well, thanks for, for allowing me to, to kind of uh, revisit this and, and, and think about how I've gotten to this point. It, it's a useful and, and helpful exercise. Um, I've been at USA Today uh, since 2019. I want to say around March, uh, the exact dates are, are a little 
uh, fuzzy. And, and you're right, prior to that, I was at the, the Chronicle of, of Higher Education. Um, but, you know, leading up to that, I, I'd just been working as, as kind of a, a general uh, assignment reporter in local news markets. So uh, I graduated from the University of New Mexico in 2012 and started working right away at the Santa Fe New Mexican. And, and so I was working as a general assignment reporter, just kind of learning the craft. And, and I did that for about three and a half years. Uh, then I got the opportunity to cover my alma mater, the University of New Mexico, for the Albuquerque Journal, which is the uh, paper, one of the larger papers in the, the state of New Mexico. I was, uh, you know, interested in my alma mater, obviously, and, and also yep. excited for for an opportunity to to work for a different publication. And and so, uh, yeah, it w- it was kind of a, a trial by fire. You know, you kind of go into it as as a a generalist and, and you're working with professors and students and, and staff and they all have sort of different interests and, and different ways of interacting with the media. Right. Right. Um, so, so that was, was kind of hard. Uh, it, it was a getting up to speed very quickly. And, and you know, what, what a local reporter is looking for is definitely uh, different than, than what, you know, say uh, a reporter at the, the Chronicle of the higher education might be looking for. Right. And so right. it, Throughout the career, I, I, I think the the challenges for, you know, as a reporter was just kind of learning, like, who is my audience when I'm working at a particular newspaper and, and who are we trying to reach and, and what kind of stories are those folks interested in, in hearing more about, right? Um, right. So, yeah. So, so, so sorry to just... To, to, no, so, keep going. I, wanna, it's, <laughs> I love this stuff. I want to hear more because I do have a follow-up sure. about covering your, your home campus, but go ahead. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So, you know, just the trajectory uh, and this is not the case for, for every reporter. Right. But but um, in, in it is a well-traveled path for, for many reporters to start in a local market, maybe work at a, a slightly larger national paper like the Chronicle of Higher Education, which is also, uh, you know, kind of trade focused and then then to kind of start working for for a national paper. Right. So so that's not. Um, it's not the way that everyone does it. Some people start working for a national paper right away. Some people prefer working in the local market and, and you know, find value and, and uh, importance in doing that, which is huge. And, and you know, um, and so so that's that's kind of how I, I came to higher education coverage. At the time, I don't know that it was that that I felt um you know, at, at 25, I, I don't know that I was, I understood kind of what higher ed did and, and kind right. of the value of it, you know, yeah. to society. Um, and, and it was only after time kind of spending every day just thinking about it and talking to professors and talking to students and administrators that I, I kind of started to appreciate the, the complexity of the system. And it is complex, but I, my follow up, and this is a little off, yeah, off I, this may be an off color comment, but I always <laughs> say to people, uh, especially young higher ed professionals who uh, a lot of them get jobs at their alma mater. A lot of them say, you know, my first job is back at my alma mater. And when I teach my grad students, I, I say, you know, your first job is your first job. I'm not going to tell you not to take your first job at your, your alma mater, but sometimes you get that first job at your alma mater and you find out like it, it feels like going to work at Disney World and finding out the guy in the in the Mickey Mouse suit's a real asshole. So like, you know, <laughs> as you're covering your alma mater where you kind of like, oh, I would I. I don't know if I feel the same way going back to the tailgate parties. I mean, was there any of that going on in your head? 
You know, I, I think there there was an element of that. I, I um, <clears throat> prior, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, prior to, to taking on the, the job with the, the Albuquerque Journal, I had been working at the student newspaper at the, and that's called the, the Daily Lobo. And mm-hmm. I had been there for all four years and, and um, you know, was the editor in chief of the last year. So it was kind of challenging from the perspective of, you know, I was here as a student and, and you know, uh, now I'm coming back to this institution as like more of a professional and, and will people take me seriously or, or will they just see me as like the college reporter? And, and you know, uh, frankly, everyone there was so welcoming and accommodating. And, uh, you know, that I just found that there is a real joy in, in kind of covering a institution on a day-to-day basis just because, you know, you, you learn about it. You, you yeah. can't help but not caring at the end of the day. And I'm sure that helped you as you were kind of going to the next level to say, okay, I know the intricacies. I understand what really, uh, you know, the engine that runs a, an institution is very different than maybe what you experience, even from a student media standpoint, point, uh, when you actually have access in different ways. So I think that that definitely informed how you moved on to your next, to your next piece of, of your uh, professional journey. Um, as we put a lens, you know, on education, and so like I've worked in higher ed for thirty plus years. Okay, right. so I've seen, I've seen a lot of trends. I've seen a lot of things come and go. Uh, things that we spend a lot of time, with, and I've seen some things that never leave. Okay, and you know, uh, people who have heard the show before, and people who have been around, and David is one of the people in the audience right now. He's heard me say this time and time again. Um, it, it, higher education moves at a glacial pace of change, and so from a from a media standpoint, sometimes it could get a little boring, right? It's like, okay, this isn't really moving, or this isn't really going anywhere. Um, and the I think the only thing that runs slower than higher education is the federal government, and so when you put the two of <laughs> them together, it could be maddening. Um, but as we put a lens on how education reporters see trends in higher ed, I'm, I'm really interested um, in where the kind of where this the kind of the stories come from. So like I, I went and I looked at your current um, in your USA Today website, you can sure. click on your uh, various reporters and you can see their latest stories. So Chris's latest stories were around uh, fraternity protests around Title IX and sexual assault. Um, and not the fraternities weren't protesting, people in the community were protesting the, the fraternities. COVID protocols, which we know is gonna be just constantly happening, um, especially how it affects schools and maybe some red states. Um, and then you did a lot of stories on student loan affordability. Um, when you're determining stories and focusing on what's to come, where does that focus come from? Is it driven by a higher ed industry? Is it communities that they're serving or somewhere else? How do you kind of make that decision? Yeah, I, I recognize this is not a, a terribly satisfying answer, but it's a little bit of A and a little bit of B, right? That's like fine. there there are some deadlines, uh, you know, that, that kind of do motivate coverage on, on the federal level, you know, uh, I have in the past have, have tried to write things kind of tied to the opening of FAFSA or, or uh, you know, looking at the graduation cycle. That's often a, a time for people to revisit uh, graduation rates or enrollment. You know, enrollment is always big kind of around, uh, you, you know, um, the releases of information from from like the National Student Clearinghouse or yep. iPads and, and, you know, that, yep. that kind of. So, so it does kind of, the, the coverage does, there's a lot of variability within the coverage, even from, you know, mainstream news uh, and, and from national newspapers, right? But there are moments where, where it sort of 
centralizes, and, and one of them is, uh, you know, around student loans and, and federal policy. Like that, that's something that kind of rises to the top for a lot of folks, and, and especially thinking about like the federal student loan payment clause, right? Like that's the sort of thing that just affects so many people that yes. there wouldn't be a question about am I going to cover it or, or, you know, like that, that sort of thing. So, so it's partially external and then it's partially internal as as well, as far as, you know, kind of just what is interesting to reporters sometimes, you know, and and kind of who are their sources, who are their networks and and kind of what are they hearing from, from their people and um, you know, different papers serve different audiences as well. So I think you'll, you can kind of see that reflected in, in, coverage uh you know some some publications uh spend a lot of time writing about the ivy leagues right and and there's nothing wrong with that um and they certainly have a lot of influence and and a lot of trends in higher ed start there um and and other publications try to to vary that up a little bit and and you know try to cast a a wider net i i am trying to do that myself and and you know i think it's not just the ivies though you know it's it's kind of um we, we recognize that reporters who've been covering higher ed for a while recognize that there are a lot of smaller institutions that don't get the same amount of coverage. It's right. just a matter of trying to figure out how do you elevate those voices and, and kind of in what context could you actually do that? Right. I think that's a really good point because I think there's, a, a, you know, we have, you know, what nearly 4,000 colleges and universities in the United States. You can't cover every single one of them, but they definitely bring a different kind of flavor to this. And I think sometimes uh, one of the things I have a bias about when it comes to, say, federal decisions um, and in dis- federal mandates is, you know, I remember when the Title IX, when the Dear Colleague letter came out in 2014 and the one that really made the difference. There were Dear colleague letters before that, but that was finally the one that said, "Okay, guess what, guys? You're not doing what we're asking you to do. So we're putting the hammer down, and we're gonna we're gonna put down a lot of these mandates about how you actually have to function around Title IX." And I was working at a very small college. I was working at Mount Ida College, which has now since closed. But I was sitting sure. working there, and I was with my vice president at the time and a couple of other people. And and my first obs- observation coming through that. Um, and reading the the actual dear colleague letter, and then going to a what was basically a mandatory three day training that we all went to uh, in they did them regionally. I came back to the school and I said, "This was written for big universities. Right. We are going to have to kind of monkey wrench this thing to make it work for our campus." And when I was actually then when at the point where I would became a vice president at the institution, I was at a, another updated training for Title IX and I'm in this room and I was talking to a vice president at a community college and other small colleges. And I was like, the problem with these things is it's written through the lens of a big school. And when you actually see the coverage of news around anything when it comes to higher ed, the big schools went out because that's just people's perspective. And we don't kind of get to how some of these decisions are impacting community colleges and small schools. As you're kind of expanding your kind of vision of how to speak to this and how to report, how do you determine if, if a school is actually a place that you want to spend time and kind of dig in on? Well, you know, I I think, Part of it is is just looking at 
what is what is the school doing differently, right? Like, right. what is kind of happening there that may not be happening nationally, or or may not be happening in the exact sort of same way, right? Mm-hmm. And and so mm-hmm. that that the, the element of novelness is is important, and and um, you know, we also think about like impact, right? And and kind of like who, like h- how much is this going to change like people's lives within this particular area, right? And mm-hmm. and then also, I mean, there, there's something to be said for just, uh, you know, a good stories, right? Like, right. I mean, particularly compelling stories about students um, have, have moved me and, and have certainly piqued my interest. And, and I think that really uh, speaks to, 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 to folks. And, and I think part of it too is, is recognizing that, um, you know, it's it's part of it maybe just finding the right reporter right there are some reporters expect even within within higher ed who spend more time uh covering community colleges and and kind of focusing on on the experience of, of you know um traditionally disadvantaged students from low income right. or you know from from uh minority backgrounds right like mm-hmm. so so it, it may just be a matter of of you know well this reporter generally writes about um you know graduation rates at, at, at like the big institutions, but this guy is, is paying attention to adult learners uh, mm-hmm. trying to navigate uh, community college transfer or, or right. you know, like, and, and there is nuance there. And, and most reporters will be uh, willing to, you know, say like, well, I don't really cover that, but you know, right. m- maybe we can still have a conversation. Let, let's have, let, let's find this person who's doing really good work with, you know, I've, I've seen their stuff. Maybe they're in a regional paper, maybe they're in something more local, but you know, I'm, I'm based out of Boston. You can't throw a dead cat in this city without hitting a university or college, right? <laughs> right. So there's a different <laughs> yeah. kind of way of looking at higher ed reporting in this city than maybe in uh, another another mid-size, I mean, I realize you know Boston's not a mid-size, but it's no Manhattan. It's not New York City sure. or whatever. So it's like that idea of what's out there. So I think it's important perspective from people who may be more in tune with that or reporters who are more in tune now because of the political landscape. Um, you know, uh, on a previous show, we had a former vice president for student affairs from the University of Texas at, at Austin. Now she's long since she's been retired for about four years or so, sure. but she has a very good perspective in terms of how do you run a university in a state where the politics are so hard to navigate. And, you know, so she had a really good insight then that is going to be different. And the same thing would happen with a reporter, right? That they're going to have a different insight in what it takes to run a flagship university in Texas versus in California. Um, There's going to be different political nuances to that. And I I think it's important that that you all kind of use each other and, and, and that sort of thing, which is good. The cyclical nature of higher ed, I think, also kind of lends itself for for some of your planning, right? Because yeah, like you said, definitely. you know, being able to say, well, here comes the FAFSA deadline. It's here it comes. It's not like it's a big surprise. Um, and so you being able to have that cyclical piece, that does give you some time to prepare, right? It, it does. It does give you time to prepare, or it does give me time to prepare. And, and you know, I would say that also generally when, when you're thinking about reporters and, and kind of what they're doing um there there are times where where reporters may be more available especially if they're covering the school year right mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. the and, and it doesn't necessarily track with with the school year precisely you know right. like we're 
I, I'm often really busy uh, in like late summer heading yeah. into the, you know, I imagine that's, that's similar for in, in the academic people experience. Work, yeah, people yeah. who work in higher ed. They'll, yeah, <laughs> like, you all have a better sense of that than me. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. there, there's certain times of year people always say, oh, summer must be, like August, September must be bad. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, but it's ends. You know, it's like, it's kind of yeah, done. Yeah. I always use, I, I always say the worst time of year is actually April because mm-hmm. it is constant and sure. you never get a day <laughs> off. And, and then you kind of go from admission season uh, into uh, end of year season. And I feel like I ate chicken dinners every night of the week because it was like, here's another award and we're going to this another <laughs> session. It's like, like, oh my God, it was like <laughs> killing me, you know? But yeah, so there's that, I could see that August would be that back to school, that kind of cyclical time. There could be your human interest story. There could be that, I mean, this past year or the last two years with COVID, that back to school had a different kind of flavor to it, right? Sure. Yeah. It, it, I mean, the 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 way that COVID has affected higher education coverage. I mean, you know, I, I recognize that this is something that that everyone is going through, and and it does not uh, need a whole lot of repeating. But even in our coverage now, um, even for for things that may not seem related to COVID, it, 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 like the influence of it is still kind of like uh, right. sh- showing up. You know, when when right. I mean. Uh, there are obvious examples when, when thinking about like enrollment, right, mm-hmm. and, and, and that that kind of thing. But um, when when you think about, you know, I've written a lot about accreditation, and and I was uh, worked with with some some of my really great colleagues over the the summer to talk about um, the way that that some schools had had been kind of implicated in, in, in sex trafficking, right? And, mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. there is even a piece there where where we something that we addressed is. They were talking about this move to, to online learning in, in some of these uh, um, pr- uh, hands-on practice sort of spaces as it relates yeah. to like massage, right? And, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. there's a big concern that like if you move that to, to online, like what's that, you know, who does that open the door to? But mm-hmm. the reason we were even kind of be able to have that conversation in the first place is, you know, just the prevalence of online classes. Right. It adds right. fuel by... So, so, it, it just it is manifesting itself in, in very weird and, and, and unusual ways. And, and I think that it will continue to kind of influence coverage that way. Um, I, I think we are getting away from just the campuses are closing uh, or, or not, not closing, but, but, you know, sending students home or right. requiring testing or, or that kind of thing. I, I think the coverage now and what I would love to hear from academics, especially is just like, Okay, well, what is the pre or what is the post COVID or post vaccine world look like for the academy, you know, for right. like a year now or, or two years or five years, right? Mm-hmm, it, just, mm-hmm. it feels like it's going to be with us for a very long time. Yeah. I, and I think, you know, one of my, one of my things is I, I wish there was more opportunity for coverage of, and mostly because not, I'm not saying that there's no coverage of it. I just don't think there's a lot of examples of it to cover is really innovative ways like people saying you know what we learned through the pandemic is this and we are really going to change up how we're operating as an institution or we're going to make some big changes um and i just don't think it's out there because of what i saw in terms of what people were doing is this desire to stay normal and say we Mm -hmm. want this to be a normal experience we want people to be able to have a normal experience i'm like it let's not let's not force the normal when some of it really isn't great normal you know right. um and i think that 
you know, uh, the other th- the thing that that higher ed's really struggling with right now is hanging on to staff. And I realize that it's uh, the great resignation has become this kind of, you know, buzz piece that is happening across industries. But the great resignation and how it hits, like I, I, I uh, did a, a show a few uh, about a month ago about this and. Um, at the time, there were 5,000 jobs just posted in Massachusetts at oh, colleges. Wow. wow. And now it's up to closer to 6,000. And the, the numbers aren't going down, they're sure. going up, <laughs> you know? And so it's this idea, and people are like, well, we're just going to post the job. I'm like, to who? Who are you posting who it you to? Hire? <laughs> who are you going to hire? And it's it's not, and these are jobs that require many of them, not just to require, require a bachelor's degree, they may, they may very well require a master's or a, a terminal degree. So it's not like you can just go outside and put a sign up on the sidewalk and say, we're hiring. It's, it's a different, it's a different reality. So I think there's a lot going on there that's a that is related to what's happening in in just society in general. Um, but in higher ed, it's a different kind of animal because of what people see as the value add. And you've done so much research and so many stories about the cost of higher ed right. that my question to you is this: that you know, as we're talking about this, if how much are we going to continue to see is is the return on investment actually worth it? If what's happening is we just don't have the staff to be able to run offices and the students aren't getting the full value of the, what they perceive as the, what they're supposed to be getting at the institution, that could be a long-standing story. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think the, the the questions around college affordability, or, or you know, I, I recognize that that is something that has been in the, the the dialogue for a long time, but it feels like it's 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 elevating itself in a, in a different way. Uh, especially as it relates to like student loan debt, right? We, right. we kind of mentioned that at the top, but um, there are just so many, you know, young people, twenty to you know, in their twenties, thirties, forties, who are kind of coming to the realization that I do have this student loan debt. Like, what does this mean for my, um, you know, future? And and kind of you know, looking back at their experience in, in university and saying, well, okay, well, I have this degree. Has it really helped? helped me you know and, and and that's like a hard thing to to say right like it's a hard thing to it because there's no way to control for it right there's no right. there's no control right. there's no way to say like well if i hadn't gotten the degree maybe i would have you know made x y and z amount of money and i would do it without student debt and and so i, I think that's part of why that co- this sort of conversation is 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 coming up so much and, and mm-hmm. something that i hear a lot from borrowers too is this sense of it's not regret, but it is just sort of like, I wish I had known more, you know, right. or, or I wish I had known like kind of like what this was, was going to look like. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think there is just an element too of, of, uh, part, part of why this is, is, is challenging for people is, is it, there's sometimes a lack of clarity in, in pricing for, uh, the universe, you know, for when you do go to university, right? Like, right. It, why does it have to be where, you know, I, I have to fill out my FAFSA and actually be accepted to actually get the financial award letter, you know, right. to, to right. get a better sense of what, what my actual cost might be. So I, I think people are aware that it is a big investment, that it has not worked out for, for some people. And so they, they don't want to kind of fall into that, that same trap. Um, and, and, and again, I recognize that uh, this is all to say also that obviously the bachelor's degree comports with higher earnings over a lifetime. Yeah, and and yeah. I don't think anyone would, would challenge that, but I think there, 
there people just want to know that they're not going to be stuck with something that that has value that that is hard for them to determine. Right. Well, and I think we we also uh, have shown that, you know, when you have such a low percentage overall of people actually completing their degree, yeah. that's a problem. And so as an industry, we need, you know, if if airlines were getting in on time in the same percentage that higher ed is actually graduating people on time, people would be looking at airlines very differently right. than than they are. Right. And so, you know, you and I yesterday when we were talking just to do a little prep and get you like kind of acclimated, we were talking about accreditation and that accreditors and, and, and I actually think that accreditation and accreditors are getting off really easy <laughs> in terms of what's happening. And they're not under the lens in any kind of real kind of reporting right now um, in terms of like they they're the ones saying the institutions should be out there and doing their own thing. Um, you know, higher education is one of the only industries out there where we accredit ourselves. Right. And to take this to the to the airlines again, if I knew that the people saying the airlines were safe to fly all worked for the airlines, I don't think I'd get on a plane. But we in higher ed are saying that school is a good school and it's meeting these criteria. But the accreditors in some ways aren't asking the right questions. I said this to you yesterday on the phone. I don't think they're asking the right questions when it comes to financial uh, wellness of the institution and, and is the fiduciary health of the institution good. Um, but I'm wondering what you think, because, I mean, accreditors and accreditation are maybe kind of this underground story here that people aren't like, you got to lift the, the hood up a little bit to figure out what's going on. What are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I, I, I accreditation is, is fascinating to me for, for that very reason that you're talking about, right? Like any university that is going to get federal money needs to be accredited and, you know, colleges can, uh, you know, I, I recognize that the process is more complicated, but but you know there there is some room to to choose your accreditor too, right? right. And, and and some room to you know to to and, and we know that there are different standards there, and and mm -hmm. and um, so so I think that that is something that is interesting to me, and I, I've written about you know some some accreditors in the past. I, I wrote a lot about. Um, ECICS, uh, as it relates to, uh, you know, I, I found a, a university in, in South Dakota that uh, was accredited by them, but just didn't have any evidence of students or faculty members. Like, yes. Yeah. At, like at all. And, and yeah. so, um, you know, when, when that sort of thing happens, it does raise the question of like, well, are you like, what is really happening here? And, and you know, BCICS has been again in the news, and the education department has, you know, made the decision to not recognize them as an accreditor anymore. And, mm -hmm. and you know, there's still appeals, and, and and that is still ongoing. But you know, I, I think it is interesting, and it does warrant more coverage. But it is so dry at times, mm -hmm. and, and complicated, yeah. and the mechanisms of, of understanding it are, you know, it, it does take a while, and and. Um, even just going to, you know, like a, a meeting like Nasiki, right, and, mm -hmm. and, and trying to understand like what that process looks like can, can be intimidating for folks. Right. I, I will say kind of in that space at the most recent meeting, there were more conversations about holding, uh, you know, what is the role of the accreditor, you know, right, and, right, and kind right. of what what should we be holding them accountable for? And, and mm -hmm. you know, is, you know, they're, they're focusing on, on academics, but are there other things that, you know, 
inherently are part of being a good university. And if we are saying that this an accreditor is a member of the triad, you know, what is their role in their yeah. triad to, to yeah. you know, to, yeah. I, I don't know if that answered the question. No, and I think it does. And I think it, your point is really well taken is that accreditation is very inside baseball, right? Like it's like yes. one of these pieces where it's like, I get amped up about accreditation, but the people who live next door to me who have a kid who's going to be to go into college next year, they don't care about accreditation. They care about the what's the cost and what are they going to get out of this? And they don't really understand what, what that means. But I think as an industry, it's an interesting story to be thinking about. And like, but it does have an impact big time, big term uh, and large term about what, what is happening out there in terms of higher ed, why are schools closing? Why are schools like actually not delivering degrees? Why are students like, why are these things happening and as an as the academy, we should be paying attention to that, and that should be an important piece of of analysis. Um, and the the journalistic uh, industry could be part of that analysis and saying these things are not quite there. Um, I I did want to also ask a question, and I want to just like uh, I want to remind people who are here in the audience live on the app. If you have a question, uh, you can request to come on up on stage and ask uh, a question of of Chris um, and uh, any follow up or any comments. So please do so. Um, but I think that that one of the other pieces that I wanted to spend some time on with you is about crisis management and about crisis communication because. Sure. A lot of these communications offices at colleges and universities are really PR offices. They're not necessarily set up to manage crisis communication. Um, they're there to kind of pump out, especially if you're at a small school in a, you know, kind of a little rural town. It's like, we're really here to kind of like, let's talk about how the students did community service and the local place. And we, we donated 75 turkeys heading up to Thanksgiving. Yay, these are the stories we're doing. I'm running the Instagram page. They're not necessarily as uh, connected to how to effectively run crisis communication. And as somebody who has interacted with uh, public relations and communications offices on campuses, are there some areas that if, if you were asked, like, what could we do better? Where could universities and colleges maybe do better when it comes to dicey and crisis type of communication? Yeah, and, and I'm going to say this with, with the caveat that I recognize that every institution has, you know, a, a different uh, a PR team and, and, and handles things differently. Um, I, I think something that, that I've encountered and something that I have a lot of sympathy for is, is you know, oftentimes the, the sort of press that, that universities may be responding to when it is sort of a crisis situation, if it's, it's um, you know, I think there's a variety of, of kind of like crises, right? Like there, there is, you know, the, the most kind of tragic when thinking about like student deaths or, or violence on campus, especially mm -hmm. as it relates to, you know, sexual violence on campus, that, 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 and that is a crisis and, and, you know, demands a sort of different response than say something like at, um, you know, like a free speech incident on campus right. that, that right. kind of like boiled over, but was featured on, on Fox News or campus reform. And now everyone is like kind of converging on them, right? I, I think that the challenge for reporters, I, you know, we're, we're kind of, a, are, we're cognizant that, you know, a lot of people are reaching out to the university and they're asking things that maybe the university generally doesn't comment on. Like, mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. so something that I think took some time for me to kind of get up to speed with is, 
you know, oftentimes when there are students involved, right? Like right. universities are limited by FERPA and, and right. what they can say. And, and I, I, I'm aware of that, but, but uh, you know, some reporters who are, who are newer to the beat or, 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 or kind of, um, you know, just, just getting up to speed or something may, may not entirely realize that. And then and anytime you don't tell a reporter something, they're going to assume it's it's kind of like based off of well they're trying to keep something they're trying to from keep me. it from me yeah and yeah. And, and so I, I I found and and I've always appreciated from from the the media professionals that I work with like an explanation as to why you're not like providing this particular information it may not be necessary but like it really goes a long way you know mm-hmm. to to you know especially if there are concerns about um, you know, for, for, for example, relating to uh, the the story I wrote about uh, the protests of sexual assaults on campus, right? right. Something that kind of came up there repeatedly is frustration over not knowing like the identities of students kind of being investigated or uh, not realizing kind of like the, 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 the process, like how long it takes universities yeah. to respond it takes to these a long things time. Yeah. sometimes. So, so I think just like an explanation of the process goes a long way, especially with reporters who are newer to the beat. You know, mm-hmm. like often, it, it, this is not true across the, the beat all the way, but but a lot of education reporters uh, are newer to journalism, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and so you know you're, you've also got to kind of kind of keep that in mind as well. So you're not just dealing with with folks who are are new to your field they may do they, they may be new to their field relatively and, and mm-hmm. so you know they may not have the same sort of um practices that you might encounter from from like a different um you know so, someone a little someone from the chronicle example for example you know that there may be a different set of expectations and knowledge that they bring to the table right i think your point is really well taken and i think one of the things that we need to kind of keep in mind is that as a practitioner side if I'm if I know I'm in the middle of something and that there will be a need for uh, my public relations office or my communications office to interact with with the media and what my role might be with that is uh, one of the things I think is good put good uh, best practice is that if I'm the vice president or if I'm the director of a department and it's something specifically related to my area then I'm talking to the communications team and saying, let me talk to you about what our process is. Let me talk to you about this, this, and this, because in many cases, that person is going to be the person talking to the media. Um, I've worked at five different universities and I am like only told I can talk to the media with their, with their clearance. So I may not be the one actually having the conversation. I may not be the spokesperson at the time, mm-hmm. but from a crisis mm-hmm. management and any kind of interaction, Letting people know this is how the process runs is super important because what you don't want is your communication staff being misquoted because they don't know the process, right? Right. Which is super important. Um, we have David Vaki. Oh, go ahead, Chris. You had something I, I, I and then we'll bring up David. Wanted, wanted to throw something in there too uh, that, that has vexed some reporters uh, in the past and, and something that I've, I've kind of run into. And, and it really does go a, a long way is just, um, you know, kind of when, when, when a reporter goes to the a university's website and they can't find where the media contacts are, that, <laughs> yeah. that is a, a real challenge for people. Uh, and, and yeah. you know, they may just start calling people directly or, yeah. or you know, um, any other any any number of other ways to, to get in touch with with the folks that they're trying to get a hold of. And, and these sort of, um, you know, I, I appreciate the, the sort of 
emails that that go to entire PR teams. But like yeah. from the unit from the reporter's perspective, if you just see a, a, a an email address that says news at Mm-hmm, university mm-hmm. x y and z at dot edu yeah. that, that may not be t- terribly helpful initially especially if they're worried about like well this is just going to go into a black box and i don't know if anyone's actually going to get back to me right and it's a really good point because what you want you want someone who's going to actually be able to be responsive yes um i i was at uh, an institution uh, my last institution and and the uh, for a period of time the talk about instagram uh the instagram account was being run by a student because the student knew how to use the platform, right? right and right. <laughs> but when there was news, they weren't supposed to respond. And, and a lot sure. of uh, you know, a lot of reporters were like, well, "I'm not going to reach out through the Instagram page." And <laughs> and and the students kind of standing there holding their phone, like, "What do I do? <laughs> how do I do this? How do I, how do I respond to this? How do yeah. I respond to this?" I David Baki, s- come on up to the microphone. How are you, old friend? Good. How are you, Miss Laura? Very well, thank you. Uh, David always has an opinion, so I was uh, I was happy to see him in the audience today. Uh, David, do you have any questions for Chris? Hi, I do. Hi, Chris. Thanks for being here. It's great to have uh, someone from the journal media out there. Um, and and this is ex- you're exactly the kind of person I want to ask this question to. So you're on the spot. You're representing all of media. So oh don't, don't feel that whole weight, <laughs> right? Because we have to sort of broadly generalize in order to ask questions that might get asked. Sure. Um, I, I do appreciate Laura's point earlier that, uh, that we're not graduating a lot. Something else. So I'm a dissertation chair. So I deal with student research and digging through this kind of stuff all the time. One of my recent okay. uh, doctoral students revisited the notion that uh, businesses slash corporate America slash wherever it is our graduates go when, when they go out there, um, continue to be disappointed in the product, right, that they're getting. They're not coming with the requisite skills that we think we need. We're talking largely in business slash corporate America. Sure. Um, but so, so that harkens back to Laura's earliest comment, I think, on this podcast today, which was we're at some sort of crisis in higher education. And I don't know if it's a full-blown crisis, but we're definitely not in the comfortable higher education days, say, of the 80s and 90s, where everything was hunky-dory and it was all fine, right? We are we are at many crossroads right now. So this will seem loaded and feel free to completely disagree and tell me that I'm wrong. Okay. Um, but what I'm wanting, and I'll, and I'll also preface, sorry for taking so long, I'll preface by saying, because Laura knows what's coming, um, that respect for all peoples and diversity on our campuses is absolutely essential for the success of higher education. So don't misconstrue what I'm about to say as being against that. So okay. my question is, could this crisis we're approaching or experiencing in higher education be a confluence of say, poor completion rates due to over-recruitment, pushing too many people into college, and then a hyper-wokeism that's on campuses. Not, not just being respectful of diversity and seeking diversity for what it contributes to the academic process, but hyper-wokeism that literally silences certain segments of the population, probably the majority of the population. Um, tell me I'm wrong or tell me if that could be part of the problem. Well, I, I guess I, I'm having a hard time with the term uh, hyper-wokeism and, and kind of trying to understand how that would um, 
kind of affect some some of the things that that we've been talking about? I mean, is it are, are you suggesting that there, there's a culture that is um, n- non-inclusive and and, that, and that's driving people away, or or yes. w- w- what's the okay? I, I um, think the hyper woke culture is driving mainstream people away from colleges at least creating a, a, a set of dissatisfaction, uh, perhaps with activist students and a, a fair number of faculty. Well, I wonder, I mean, I'm going to jump in because, you know, my, uh, you know, David and I are, are old friends and colleagues, and we also don't agree on everything. And that's actually good, right? And yeah. there's that idea of um, one of the questions I was going to ask Chris today was about, you know, in the K-12 environment, the CRT issue has become a big driving point. It's become extremely political. It's driving um, school board elections. There's a lot going on. And we are finding that, you know, where is that going to hit in terms of higher ed? Right now, down at University of Florida, there was a whole kerfuffle about academic freedom and right. who can speak and all that sort of thing. And I think that there is a there is in our decades long, I mean, David and I remember back when, you know, it, it's like I said to you earlier, Chris, I've, I've worked in higher ed for 30 plus years. What was once uh, multicultural, you know, once diversity offices then turned into multicultural offices, then became diversity, equity and inclusion offices and that, you know, or whatever. There was this whole kind of uh, progression as we became more aware of student development theory, what's happening out there, what's actually working on the street. Um, And we were kind of like four, five, 10 years ahead of the curve in terms of how some institutions are are providing services and support and setting out values, right? Right. And I think some of this is value driven. And, you know, I, I'm not a huge fan of the woke term because I think it's this is not saying David's lazy and he and I'll text later when he says you called me lazy. It's like woke is kind of this term that's like people throw out there and, and it's now become this the, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. But I think that when we look at the lack of, you know, you were talking about campus protests there is a real nugget there about campus protests and who feels heard, who feels seen, and who feels like they are on the receiving end of it. Okay. And David, let me know if I'm, I'm kind of encapsulating this a little bit with what you were saying is that I think there's a population on our campuses that get very amped up. We talked about this yesterday when you and I were talking about how campus protests now are very different than they were 15, 20, 40 years ago. And the expectations of a campus protest right now are we want something in writing right now, immediate. It needs to change right now because this is not working for me. Yeah. But the people on the receiving end of it, especially if they are members of the community, not the administration, the administration never gets a pass, right? But if it's a member of the community, so a fraternity member, an athlete, a man, a straight white man, they feel that there is something on the on the receiving end and they need to be ready to respond. And I think that there is there is actual some room here to understand what is driving protest. And is it actually the actions of the institution 
or is it the broader society and the institution is the focus of it at the time because they're not feeling heard or seen in a broad sense? Right. And and so I'm going to do, do my best to, to try to address this. The, I threw a lot at you. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and David and I, I'm going to try to try to address this as well. And, and if I don't get there, then maybe we'll, we'll, we'll try again. But, um, you know, when, when I think about activism on campus and, and kind of, you know, how that affects its perception and, and kind of who is responding to that, you know, I, I go back to, um, you know, uh, this Pew survey from, I, I want to say 18 or 19, it's, it's a little uh, blurry in my head right now. But, you know, I, I think people on both sides of the political spectrum have different concerns about the university. I think on the left, there is like a very prominent concern about cost, you know, student debt, what is, you know, kind of being like, are, are these institutions being fiscally responsible? Are they really producing graduates uh, fairly, right? And, mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. I think that's a, a concern on the left. And then on, on the right, like, predominantly, the concern was about indoctrination, uh, you know, kind of this idea that universities are um, molding students in their in their image, right? And, and so, I mean, professors know that, like, you know, the challenge of getting a student to do their homework is, mm-hmm. is uh, you know, a, a big barrier, much less, you know, kind of re, remapping their brain politically. It, it mm-hmm, seems like mm-hmm. a, a different kind of task, right? And, right. and so I don't, I, I guess, I recognize that these are concerns on, on campuses. I just, I don't know that I've seen the the data yet showing that this is what is driving people right. away from the university so much as you know maybe maybe it's there maybe it's an element of, of things that people are concerned about mm-hmm. but you know there's also like an element now when we're, we're talking about enrollment right like the labor market is booming right now you know you, right. can, you can make a ton of money well not not a ton of money right but you can make pretty decent money right now uh out of high school starting in, in, in a lot of jobs. And, and for maybe for some of the, the young men out there, like that is a, a, an attractive alternative right now, mm-hmm. you know, the idea of making money in the short term. So well, something you brought up, Chris, and I think David, I think it dovetailed on your question is that there is a real perspective, right? So you've got um, in terms of the news and when you're looking at this from uh, being in the receiving end, as far as like you're, you're the reporter, you're sitting here saying, what's the story? What's the story here? And your point about the, a student who might be more on the progressive side, um, even pragmatically progressive and saying, what am I spending my money on? Is this worth it? Am I getting a degree that's actually worth it long term? David's point coming in saying, you know what, we have employers saying, why is it that we have to onboard these people with so many skills? It's not just about onboarding should be about the culture of the organization. It should be about what it's like to be an employee here. It should be policies, not how to be an accountant. You're like you should know how to be an accountant before we hire you, right? And so there's that side. Then you've got the side that is this idea of maybe on the more conservative student enrolling and saying, or their family saying, am I going to end up with a different kid in four years when they come home? Are they going to have the same values as us? Are they going to be indoctrinated and that idea? And so I think it's an interesting news element here is that where's the dissatisfaction or the satisfaction, depending on where you're looking. And ultimately, 
are we in a situation where in my introduction, I said higher education is at a point right now where we're not really trusted by people enrolled, people in the community, because we're highfalutin, liberal, like leaning people. And it's like, oh, well, they all have an agenda. Well, they actually, you know, if you've ever sat in a faculty meeting like I have, there's a lot of opinion in that room and there's a lot of politics in that room and it is not all the same. And we do ourselves a disservice because people think we all wear tweed coats with elbow patches and we're all, you know, the members of certain political sure. organizations, right? And so, um, you know, I might be that person, but I might not be that person. And so we don't do it as ourselves a service here. And I think that there is really a piece um, that there's a complexity. And I think that the, the, that your, your answer to this question, Chris, shows me that you get it. Like there's, there's not every kit and not every campus has the same college student. It's not the same college product and it's not the same outcome in terms of the learning that is happening. Okay. And, you know, um, one thing that I think is a good story that's happening right now is more of that conversation about is a four-year degree for everybody, as you said, and we've said at various points along the way today, you know, there's other opportunities out there, whether it be a trade or whatever, but that right now is actually, I think, a dawn of a new higher education attitude in this country in that we may be able to embrace this idea that a four-year baccalaureate degree is not for everybody, nor is it necessary for everybody. Um, and where does it, where does it turn out? Yeah, I, I, I that's a, a challenging place. Uh, that's something I think a lot about, right? When, yeah. when I think about um, earnings over a lifetime, when I think about the opportunity that a degree really opens, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and the doors that, that, um, you know, open up that, that weren't available, you know, I, I think, the my degree, uh, you know, I, I came from a family where there weren't a lot of college goers, and and so um, getting my degree really transformed my life, and and kind of made it possible for me to do a lot of things that I wouldn't have normally have done. Um, but you know, when you look at like maybe my academics on paper when I graduated, or or looking at like my my. Uh, siblings or, or something like maybe what if we didn't have like the best academic scores or what if you know we weren't uh, you know didn't have enough money to go to like a institution with that that was going to uh, you know get us through the door or, or something right like th does that mean that we're, we're I, I recognize what, what you're saying but but I'm also worried about the who are we closing the door to right by, by saying that right and, and so it, it's not I recognize that not everyone can get it but <laughs> We have to, or I think there is value in recognizing that, like that, 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 that's how the rhetoric can can develop, right? And, and right, so right. I, well, I and I think that there's there's, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but I think oh, no, there's an it. opportunity here for us, maybe on that new dawn of being able to realize that there are different ways of moving people to a point that they are feeling that they are of their own, that they have they have power over their own destiny, okay? And that may be a four year degree. That may be that idea of a two-year program at a community college that gets them what they need to then move to this, and then it opens the door. And I think one of the things that we don't do well in higher ed is we don't create a situation where the door stays propped open. 
And what I mean by that is if a student decides to start in community college and then says, I want to continue, there's some states and you're well aware that there's states out there that say you can start at a free community college and move seamlessly up. I'm in Massachusetts. You would think this like where it is, we are lousy with colleges and universities that that would be the case. It is not the case. Right, right. It is not the case. And so if you are a, a student in Massachusetts, you are actually at a disservice in this idea of, I want to start a community college and I want to seamlessly move. But in Kentucky, Kentucky, you can't. And this is not me snubbing at Kentucky, but we talk about Kentucky like it's, well, that's not Like, no, that you can and so when, as, a, as an industry, we don't leave the door open. And so you may start somewhere and the door shuts. Right. You have the wrong high school, door shuts. So we need to be better about that. And when I think about the new dawn, it's about, I'd rather see a young person take two years, go to trade school, go to community college, enroll in the military, whatever the case may be, and the door is still propped open. Right. Right. Yeah, I think the the model of of you know you have to figure out what you're going to do with the rest of your life at 18 is is fraught and and can be challenging. And you know, I, I think part of that is driven by the way that like financial awards are given out, right? Mm-hmm. Like you know, there there is a lot of incentive to to go right away. And you know, there's research to back that too, recognizing that people who don't start college right away, you know, may struggle or may have a harder time to to complete later on. And so. These are these are tricky and, and challenging questions, and, and um, that's why it's frustrating to hear, <clears throat> um, not 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 in this call, but but generally, you know, the the, the sort of skepticism that that you mentioned towards higher education. It, it's it's this sort of thing where um, it, it feels like politicians, where everyone loves their local politician, but but feels kind of like. Uh, well, maybe not everyone, but but it feels like dissatisfied with like the wider congressional body, right? Like I, I think that's something that comes up a lot is like people love their their local colleges, you know, and 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 will fight tooth and nail to protect them. And then, but you know, there are these wider concerns and criticisms towards higher ed broadly, right? And, and right, so that's right. like a tricky thing too, is is kind of like recognizing that people do see the value in these, things, you right. know, in, in a higher education. It's just it feels like a, an easy target. Uh, given how expansive it is. And, and it cuts through so many sectors of society. And, and you know, it's important for people. Yeah, it is important. And it's a complicated issue. And that's why I, I love the fact that, you know, there's a lot to talk about when it comes to higher ed, because it's it's a constant, it's a living, breathing organism, right? Yes. Like we're here to do something and we're dealing with the human condition. We're dealing with people who come in with an expectation and then the outcomes are different. And I think that, you know, you know, as we close out the hour here, I think one of the really interesting things about your state of kind of journalistic viewpoint is at the USA Today, you are, you're writing for, in some ways, the consumer of it, right? As much as you are writing for me, who is yeah. ingrained in it, and I sit here and go, oh, that's a good story. Oh, that's a good one to share. Like, I don't share a lot of stuff from the Chronicle, not just because you need a, it has a paywall, but, but it's like, but that, you know, it's that idea of this is, this is your, you know, trade magazine mm-hmm. kind of feel versus your consumer magazine type of feel. And I think that there is a, there's a place here 
that institutions, and, and this is really a show for people on college campuses, as well as people who care about college campuses, to really kind of get to this idea of if we have a, if we have a brand problem, mm-hmm. which higher ed may have a brand problem, but our brand problem is not a, a singular brand problem. And I think, I think fueled by some of David's question and your response, I think the thing that I'm really taking from today is that we can't assume every brand problem and, and we do this. We do this on our campus. We think it's about one thing. And it's not about one thing. It's about multiple things. And right now, how things are informed by the pandemic, how things are formed by the economy, how things are informed by this, is that we there's a reason higher education isn't nimble. The last year and a half, 20 months, whatever it's been, we've had to be more nimble than we've ever been. And we're exhausted. Sure. And we don't know how to handle it. Um, but we need to start to think it's that it's not a knee jerk reaction. People aren't happy or they don't trust because of a myriad of reasons, some of which we control and some of which we don't. Right. Exactly. Like people are, are all coming at this from different angles and they all have different expectations about, you know, what a higher education should be and, and how it should serve people. So, right. and, and that's something that I grapple with in, in my coverage and, and, uh, you know, thinking about, um, you, you know, how to, how to try to get all of those concerns in, in kind of like a, a, an accessible way for, for people to uh, address them. And you're right, we're definitely focusing on families and, and students and the people navigating the higher education system because, you know, it's not, for, for people who aren't familiar with it, it, it can be intimidating sometimes. It absolutely is. Um, we're coming up at the top of the hour. We're coming up at the end. Um, I did want to thank uh, Chris for being here. I am going to ask that he give us an idea of his uh, of how to reach him um, if people want to follow him on on social media. So I'll give him as the last word once I plug our uh, next show, which will be. This Tuesday, uh, because of the holiday, we are going to have our next show on Tuesday at noontime. Um, We are focusing on uh, the issue around food insecurity. Uh, Right now, uh, the student uh, food insecurity is at an all-time high. Uh, 50% or more students at community colleges and nearly 50% at four-year residential colleges are struggling with food insecurity. And we're going to have two folks uh, here who are leaders in that area doing best practice at both both residential as well as community college. So please join us this coming Tuesday. Uh, So Chris, how do people find you uh, on the social media front? Yeah, I'm uh, aggressively on Twitter. I'm I'm there often. uh, So that that is often the best place to reach me. And and my handle there is C Quintana DC. And that's a C Q U I N T A N A DC. Excellent. Um, my DMs are open there and, and, you know, I do my best to, to respond to them. Uh, you know, if I, if I don't get you right away, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, uh, I always, if you read, I, I don't mind if people send me messages twice. So that's, uh, just would, would love to, to point to that. And, and thank you so much for having me today. This has been great, Chris. And thank you so much. And you are always welcome to come back. Um, yeah. And uh, it's wonderful to have you and have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And so everybody, please, thank you. Have a wonderful day. And thank you for joining us. I hope to see you on Tuesday back here at, at Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. Have a great one.